Well, for the last month, we have been in a sermon series diving into the New Testament book of Philippians, this letter, this short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Philippi, and the theme of our series has really followed the theme of the letter, and we've titled it, Finding Joy in the Journey. Through all the trials of life, how do we find joy? How do we live with joy? Which raises a a fundamental question that we want to ask this morning. How are we to live as God's people in the world? How are we to live as God's people in the world? It's a broad question, but we ask it because we know that there's trouble in this world. There's trouble in our lives. And if you're like me, you're constantly trying to sort through it all. And if you're a Christian, and the center of your life is following Jesus, then this question is paramount. It's so important. I think it's safe to say that most people are afraid of the unknown. Most of us are a little uncomfortable with the unknown. Things that we've never seen or things that we've never experienced before, they can seem overwhelming or we're afraid of them, perhaps. I'll show you this slide here. On some old maps, cartographers or map makers, there's two pictures here, uh, would put down what they knew was there, but at the edges of the maps, beyond what they had knowledge for or any understanding of, they just didn't know what was out there, some would write phrases. And one of the phrases you see on old maps sometimes is this, beyond here, there be dragons. Beyond here, there be dragons. We don't know what's out there. There could be dragons. One writer said this, Those famous words served as a warning to the map's original users and a kind of artistic creativity from the map's artisan makers. To us, they seem to comment both on the travails of the terrain, we don't know what's there, and about the dangers of ignorance. There might as well be dragons in this unknown spot. The words remind us how different our modern-day map making is, shot from cameras in the sky and available on every smartphone. Maps are ubiquitous and photographic, and the creatures they catalog are too small to see. See, our maps today take a lot of the uncertainty away. But we still live with a ton of uncertainty. The things that we can't see coming, or the things that we're scared of that may be out in the distance that we're not sure of. And in this letter to the Philippians, Paul writes to Christians who have to live their lives as if dragons are around every corner. This is the kind of life that they're living. And yet, they seem to be a church filled with joy, full of joy. And so this morning, I want us to look at the very end of chapter one in Philippians, and I want us to see three things, three marks of living as God's people in the world, and this is on your outline. The first mark is worthy conduct. We are called to live as God's people in the world 
with worthy conduct. Look with me at Philippians 1.27. If you have a Bible or it'll be up on the screen. 1.27, Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. See, if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Dudley has kind of set the scene for what's happening around the book of Philippians. But Paul, if you remember, is writing from prison. He himself is uncertain of what is around the corner, of what the future holds. And he says right here that they actually should prepare for the potential that he may never see them again. And this was kind of normal for Paul. This was his life. On numerous occasions in his ministry, he ended up in prison, beaten to an inch of his life, shipwrecked. I mean, this man knew what suffering was all about. And he says, listen, whatever happens, here's what it means to live as God's people in the world. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of the gospel. Now what's he getting at? I don't think you have to spend too much time on social media or watch too much TV today to realize that one of the greatest dividing lines in our society is on how we are to conduct ourselves. What things are appropriate? What things aren't appropriate? What things are moral things? And what things are amoral things? Meaning there shouldn't be any morality attached to them at all, so it doesn't really matter what you decide, whatever you want to do. And though it feels to many of us that kind of our world is on this runaway train in the wrong direction, this really is the story of the human heart. And in fact, it's the story of ancient Philippi as well. It's always been the same. See, Philippi was a Roman colony and there was a large military outpost in the city. These people were Roman soldiers and Roman citizens and they were very proud of being Roman citizens even though they were living far away from Rome. They kind of saw this as a miniature version of Rome. They were residents of Philippi but they were citizens of Rome and so they lived abiding by the customs and the morals of Rome which means that they were living apart from the God of the Bible. The way they were living was different from the life that God of Bible talks about. And that has always been the story of humanity. That from the very beginning, men and women have sought to do that for themselves, to seek out the kind of conduct, the kind of way of life that they saw fit. Whatever they thought worked best for them and the Bible is very clear and I think world history is very clear that when we do that when men and women live life apart from God we wreak havoc on one another that's how sin came into the world that's how sin has come into our lives it's our natural conduct our natural conduct as humans leads us away from God. It separates us from the holy God that the Bible talks about. 
And so the bad news of the gospel is simply that because we have a holy God, he has to do something about that sin, that sin that separates us. He punishes that sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God himself, though he is just, is also loving. And he himself has taken the initiative to rescue us, to come to you and me, to come to this world in Jesus and to take on the human life and live life perfectly according to God's ways with worthy conduct that honored God. He did that perfectly, which made him the perfect sacrifice for our sin, to do something about that separation between us and God. And the cross then becomes the place where that separation is bridged, where our sin is washed away when Jesus dies. But the glory of the gospel is that three days later, the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life to never die again means that you and I, if we believe, are also looking forward to a day of resurrection when we will be part of God's family for all eternity. That's what we believe as Christians. That's what we invite people to believe who are not yet Christians. And since that's true, you and I then live a life of regular repentance in light of it. That means that we recognize that there's a way to live that honors God, and when we stray from it, when we go in our own direction, back to our natural conduct, what we do is we repent and we confess our sins and we remember what God has done for us. That because of Jesus, we have been adopted into his eternal family. That we are his, his beloved sons and daughters. The key to living a life worthy of the gospel is to constantly remember what the gospel is. And that when we stray from it, he calls us back to it, to repent and remember what he has done. And you see, Paul is telling these Christians in Philippi that though they're residents of that place, they're first citizens of heaven. They're being called by Paul to live in a certain way that was different from the Roman way. They're called to live a life worthy of of the gospel of Jesus. And here's what I think this means for you and I. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to live in such a way that Christ is the central and most important part of our lives. That Christ is the most center part of who we are, that what he has done for us, his death and his resurrection is the center of our being, of who we are. It is our rock. Nothing else can be in that place. And if you've come to that place in your life to, to trust that and to believe that, if Christ is your life, then you are going to live a life worthy of that. You are going to desire that more and more. Your conduct, your life is going to reflect what Jesus has done for you. 
That's the first mark of what it means to live as God's people in the world, that we live with worthy conduct that honors the gospel. But secondly, the second mark is this, our cooperative unity, our unity together, our cooperative unity. Uh, Some of you, if you have kids, even if you've raised kids in the last 20 years, you'll know about Pixar Studios, the great uh, animation studios that Disney now owns that's given us Toy Story and Ratatouille and The Incredibles and Cars, all these, the list is just so long of great films. And early on when Steve Jobs kind of took over Pixar, uh, they had these plans for these three buildings of their facility of how they were going to organize themselves, these three different buildings, and, and Jobs scrapped that early on and he bought an old Del Monte canning factory in California. This factory had this big atrium in the center of it. And the way he designed their facility was that while the offices were going to be around the outside, everything that was crucial to people coming together was going to be right in the middle around that atrium. So all of the uh, meeting rooms, the bathrooms, the break rooms, uh, the conference rooms, uh, everything was going to be right there in the center. And of course, people were frustrated and had to get up from their, you know, to go anywhere, to get anything. You had to leave your office and go all the way to the center of the building to do this. But Jobs kept telling his employees, everybody has to run into each other. And one Pixar producer called it smushing. And he added, if I don't see lots of smushing, I get worried. One of the directors of The Incredibles said this, the atrium initially might seem like a waste of space, but Steve realized that when people run into each other, when they make eye contact, things happen. So he made it possible for you not to run into the, he made it impossible for you not to run into the rest of the company. And the Latin motto for Pixar, that they, company-wide they go by in English, means alone no longer. I think we could all agree that that's led to some pretty great work of theirs, this kind of cooperative unity of being together. Look with me at verse 27 in Philippians 1. Paul writes, Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul says one of the ways that you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel is by living it together with one another, striving together in unity. You see, we're meant to live life in relationship, in friendship with one another. It's, it's just primary to who we are as humans and especially important for Christians. Why? Because of what unites us. And what is it that unites us as Christians? The gospel, Christ, Christ himself. And we should know, and I think we do deep down, that we know that we can't do life on our own, that we need help, we need other people, not just even our immediate families, we need more people, deep friendships, people who care about us. who are going to help us live as God's people in the world. In other words, 
we need much more smushing in our lives, right? We need that to be happening regularly. And the beautiful thing is that this is the place where that happens. Right here, the church, what we're doing this morning, what we commit to do as a family of Christians together, we begin to experience a kind of cooperative unity. And you know, unity is a word that I think we all love to think and dream about, but it just seems so impossible. We're always talking about unity today, coming together. Even as Christians, there's so many Christians around the world speaking so many languages, different denominations, traditions. How on earth will we ever come together to experience unity? And I think there's something often missed when we talk about unity that is vitally important. In fact, the whole thing, I think, falls apart if we miss it. We have to realize that unity is not something that you and I do. Unity is God's gift to us. Because, let's face it, if unity is something that we do, I think we have enough examples of how we are continually failing at that task, right? Unity, then, is what God gives to us. And that makes perfect sense because what is it that we are unified around? Jesus. And what greater gift has God given to us than Jesus? So if what we are unified around is God's gift to us, then unity itself is also his gift to us, something that we have to welcome and receive into our lives. Some of us know, I think, that we're living too isolated, that we know we're lonely, we know we want to experience more life together, but we just can't seem to find it, we can't seem to produce it, it's not happening for us, and the only thing I wanna say to you, if that may be you this morning, is to encourage you to receive it, to look around, that this place could be the place where you find what you're looking for. And what it takes is you receiving that and welcoming it into your life to know that the answer is God's gift in Christ and that gift is found in one another here in this family. You see, when we do life together in the gospel, it begins to kind of produce this unity But it also reminds us that it requires living a life that's worthy of the gospel with worthy conduct. All of those things, doing both of those things, lead us to be able to do something perhaps even more difficult. And it's our third mark of what it means to live as God's people in the world. That those things allow us to be confident in suffering. Confident in suffering. Look with me at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm gonna read that part again. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You see, for Paul, suffering is not something that only some people experience. It's a given as part of life in this world. And it is a given in the life 
of the Christian, but I want you to see what he says here because I think it's key to understanding how we can actually live confidently in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our suffering. Here's what he says. It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Think about that. In other words, grace has been granted to you to believe in Jesus. Amen, right? We celebrate that. But grace has also been granted to you to suffer for Jesus. Whoa. God has already given you grace for the suffering that you will endure in this life. This is what Paul is saying. Listen, if you want to take a spiritual litmus test of your life and how God is at work in your life, usually you can point to two strong evidences and it's on your outline. One is that you believe in him. Second, that you suffer for him. If those two things are happening, then you are seeing some pretty strong evidence of your spiritual vitality. And I know this is hard to grasp, but this is what the Bible is teaching us here. That in fact, in our suffering, God's grace is working in us. That even though we live in a troubled world, even in the midst of that trouble, none of that is outside of God's control or outside of his grace. And all of it is an opportunity for us to experience God's grace. And I think when we think of suffering, uh, we think of the difficult hardships that we go through, we automatically run to two different options or responses. The first is, what did I do for this to happen? Did I do something wrong? I must have done something wrong for this to happen, this to come into my life. Or secondly, we respond with, why would God allow this awful thing to happen to me? That's usually the two places that we go. However, I want us to see from this passage, and I want to say something that I hope will kind of shatter those two responses, and it's this. The suffering that comes into the life of the follower of Jesus is not proof that God is absent or that you did something to deserve it. Instead, Paul says our suffering in Christ is proof, a sign that God's work of grace is alive in you. It's a proof, a sign that God's grace is taking root in you. Do you see the difference? all the difference in the world that when we suffer it's not that God is absent or that we've done something to deserve it or that he's not in control of our lives no we believe that we can actually become confident in suffering when we realize that even in our suffering God is showing his grace to us that his grace is working in us and that is how you find joy in the journey That is how you and I live, meant to live as God's people in the world. To get there, though, means that we first have to be living a life of worthy conduct that honors Christ. And then we have to be coming together and experiencing the kind of unity that helps us strive 
together in the gospel so that we can be confident even in our trouble. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship does this big uh, conference every three years called Urbana, and it's meant to gather um, college students and high school students from around the world to consider uh, world evangelization, and they bring 15, 20,000 students together, and they did this in 2009 in one particular instance. And uh, as they gathered together, all these countries, they would uh, worship together in, these, in this huge auditorium, all, you know, all 20,000. And then later in the evening, they would break down into smaller groups, and they would worship together with kind of the students from their continent or their region of the world. But there was three groups of students that they know, that they knew that they just could not bring together. The students from China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And so in their room, they actually had constructed these dividers, these temporary walls to separate these three groups of students because they knew there was just so much emotional baggage and political division and history between these three groups that it was just better to let them worship on their own instead. But one student, a group of students, had enough of that. And instead, one night, as they gathered, one student finally spoke up and said, in Christ, we are all one family. Can we take down this wall and invite the Taiwanese to come and worship with us? And then one student from the Taiwanese said, well, if we're gonna worship with the Chinese, why don't we just invite the students from Hong Kong also? And so the walls came down and all three groups for the first time worshiped together. One leader said, Christ breaks down political boundaries. In Christ, we have the desire to make the first steps to connect. And so they worshiped together. And then the next night, they invited the Korean students to join them. And then the Japanese groups joined them. All these nations that had had this animosity towards one another through the years, coming together, the leader told them, we are living out what we have learned this week, that this is God with us. That sounds like conduct worthy of the gospel, right? That sounds like honoring Jesus and striving together in this cooperative unity for Jesus that allows them to confront the past suffering that they've gone through from one another and be able to come together and worship Jesus. And though that seems like such a grand scale, for each and every one of us, we're all kind of facing the same types of issues. We want to know how you live your life in your neighborhood or in your workplace as God's man or woman in the world so that people will take notice, that people will wonder what is different about you. We do it by living a life that is worthy of the gospel with conduct that points to the fact that Jesus is the very center of who we are, that he is our rock, that he is the most important part of our lives. And we do it by coming together like this and experiencing unity, striving together, helping to remind each other of what Jesus has done for us so that when we face suffering, 
either personally or with one another, we can confidently encourage each other and go through it together. That's how you stick out in this world. That's how we live as God's people in the world and find joy in the journey. And as we close this morning, I I don't know where you may be in your life. I don't know all of your stories or what's going on, what you're facing, what kind of difficulty you may be going through or discouragement. I'm facing my own right now, as I'm sure we all are. But here's what I know and what I want to encourage you with this morning is that we can find joy in this life. We can. We can find joy in the journey. But it doesn't come from the sources we want it to always come from. It's the gift of God. And it's given to us when we live lives with conduct that gives honor and glory to Christ. And it's given to us when we lean on each other and experience our unity with one another. And even more difficultly, it's given to us when we suffer for him. Nothing of what I've just said in all that has anything to do with the special things that you and I could do for God. None of it. All of them simply require us to believe in him, to trust in him, and then to receive from him. That we receive Christ, we receive this unity, we receive what he is doing in us, his grace at work in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we are today tasked with thinking about what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, Lord, we know that so often we stray away from it with conduct that doesn't bring you honor or glory. And yet, by your grace, you call us back. We repent and we believe again what's true of us, that you love us, that you have forgiven us. Lord, that should lead us to one another, to be able to come together in that, in unity, to encourage one another, to find, Lord, the remedy for our loneliness being separated from one another. God, would you bring us more and more together? And finally, God, because of that, because of our unity, you allow us to confidently face our suffering, the trouble that is in our lives, and know that it is proof that you are at work in us, that your grace is working and alive in us. God, I pray that wherever we may be, however we may need to hear that today, would your spirit drive it deep down into us so that it would change us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.